some familiar faces here, a lot of new faces. Uh, it's great to have you here. When I heard that the seminar was going to be in the tent, I thought it is definitely not going to be a full house. But uh, great to see so many people here engaging with this really important issue. Um, I'm Donna, married to Nathaniel, Nathaniel Jennings. Um, you can see him out of the OMF stand. He's the really good-looking guy. Uh, we have two children, Micah, who is 11, Tabitha, who is 8. I grew up in East Belfast, to live in East Belfast, but had a bit of a dip out. My husband and I did church planting work in Bangladesh uh, with SIM for several years. Um, during that time, we did a master's in missiology. And now I'm working in the EA in the role of church and mission coordinator. So church gospel mission has always been the direction of travel for me. It's been the direction that Jesus has been leading me. It's been the lens that he has given me to see the world. Um, after we came back from Bangladesh living here, um, I'll talk a little bit about this, but we had so many questions and so many struggles from within the church and with Christian theology that um, a couple of parents who we had met in our time in, in Belfast Bible College, three of us, we got together and started a group called TEO, which is the little orange postcard here. You may have heard of TEO. We've been doing a bit about around churches. Um, and this is really to bring the Christian biblical voice on intellectual disability um, into church and into society. So my journey into disability really started specifically um, around intellectual disability, which is important to mention, uh, around our son, Micah. Uh, Micah, who was 20 months old, he developed quite typically, um, beautiful little baby. And suddenly when we were in Bangladesh and he was 20 months old, he had this two weeks where he completely regressed. And his regression and his developmental developmental regression actually was so uh, significant and so severe that he um, was given uh, an immediate diagnosis when we came back into Northern Ireland of autism, uh, learning severe, profound learning disability. Later to be added to that, ADHD, challenging behaviours, sleep disorder, and a couple of other things. Um, this, for us at this time, just threw our worlds into a spin. We knew we had been asked by the Lord to go and do church planting in Bangladesh. There was so much loss around that time. Um, we were so passionate about the gospel, about church and mission and church growing, especially in the margins and, the, and for vulnerable people. And yet when we came back to Northern Ireland with this lens of seeing church, world, gospel we experienced this gap and where we knew God's heart to be and what we were experiencing within the church and Christian gatherings and within Christian theology. I had so many questions about Micah, about the essence of humanity, about the revelation of God, about salvation, about church as body that I did not see worked out and I did not find in systematic theologies even though I searched. Specifically, we saw gaps around the lack of personal engagement with people, men, women, boys and girls, and genuine friendships, often excluded from Christian community gatherings, homes, events. They were not expected to be able to encounter Jesus or to engage with God. The voice that society casts over those with disability is particularly damning 
just look at the references to disability within the abortion debate. That kind of humanity does not deserve a life. That kind of a humanity is a burden and a drain on society, on the parents. And so the engagement and discovery um, that I was making through delving into a specific kind of theology, a disability theology, for me was a turnaround point. And there was a moment when I had a, a pivotal moment in how I was perceiving Micah, engaging with, with the world that I knew was true in church gospel mission and my experience and my son. And it was all around the image of God and humanity. Today we're going to delve into Luke 14. Um, I'm going to read it in a minute. Yeah, we're going to delve into Luke 14. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Which is a series of events all around a dinner party. It ends in the parable that Jesus told of the great banquet, which is a really familiar passage to most of us, uh, but actually is maybe one of the most misunderstood or misused parables that Jesus told. Often it's used in an evangelistic invite, a persuasion. Look how good it is in here. Just come in, accept Jesus. Don't miss out this opportunity to come into the feast. And, you know, there's truth in that. But actually when you read it in context and in its its narrative context and its cultural context, we see that this parable that Jesus told was an indictment to God's people. It was a call for them to come on, stand up, be better, be more beautiful and reach the purpose to which God has called you for in this place and this time. Um, One author that I read said, um, taken in the context of the whole chapter, the religious leaders would have known Jesus was talking to them. It was a crescendo with a damning conclusion for them. Some key words themes that come out through this parable which we're going to explore so chapter 14 this is a progressive passage it depicts a series of conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees we see him first of all he's on his way accompanied by other Pharisees to the house ruler of the Pharisees where he had been invited to have dinner Pharisees and lawyers one of them a ruler could this have been a member of the Sanhedrin He's going into an arena of high social, political and religious position and influence. And they're watching him very carefully. It's the Sabbath. Language used here tells us it's a Sabbath meal. They're headed to this weekly event that was a placed reminder for God's people at that time to look back to what God had done and to look forward to what he was going to do. We're familiar with that in our Christian churches, right? We'll talk about that as well later. So let's read the passage. Uh, Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to the leaders, which of you having a son or an ox that had fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited as the dinner party where they were going to. 
when he noticed how they chose the places of honour, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the place of honour, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to that person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and all who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at a table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I have to go and examine them. Just excuse me too. Another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited the t- the f- who were invited will taste my banquet. This is um, a progressive passage. Verses 1 to 6, they pass a man who had dropsy. Jesus stops to heal him. And he engages them in questions about the holiness laws around the Sabbath. Verses 7 to 11, There's a commentary on guests and their scrambling for power at a a wedding feast or a banquet. 12 to 14, Jesus gives instructions to a host on how to host a banquet and who to invite. Verse 15, this throw-out comment, which was probably part of the Sabbath meal ritual, referencing the messianic banquet. Verses 16 to 24 is the parable of the great banquet. Now, this parable is rooted in real-lifetime context around real people A man with dropsy. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 are actually the foundation and the catalyst to the whole passage here, to the whole chapter. Jesus in the parable wants to highlight the disconnect between God's people in real time, real place, real humanity, real disability, real people living outside, and their religious celebration, which was to be waiting for living under the coming kingdom. A kind of sacred secular divide. What goes on in here was so disconnected to what went on out there and how they engaged with the people out there. Christian church is not guilty of that, right? We talk often about what it means to glorify God. 
And sometimes I think we have a disconnected, spiritualized understanding of what glorifying really means to make the weight of God's character known. Eugene Peterson writes, if we are going to live as intended, which is to the glory of God, we cannot do it abstractly or generally. We have to do it under the particularizing conditions in which God works, namely time and place, here and now. If we are going to enjoy this gift of place in which the Lord has placed us, we are going to have to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above us, the violets blooming at our feet. Men, women, children, the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally impaired and the emotionally distraught, each a significant sacred detail of nature of God's creation. Too often, God's people have domesticated and disconnected the sphere of Jesus and the glory of God from the real life, raw, rugged context of our local communities. And this is where this look and passage of Jesus is directing us. We are often quite happy to say, yes, he is Lord of my heart, Lord of heaven, but not Lord of the earth, the streets and the homes around our churches. And so Jesus has come into this high class Sabbath dinner party and stirred up a bit of a theological debate. Have you ever had a dinner guest like this? He's critiqued the host for how he's hosted the party. He's critiqued the guests for how they're behaving at the party. And now he's responded to someone who's trying to look to the the messianic feast. Not sure the pavlova would be going down quite too well at this stage in in the dinner party. And as the tension rises, some poor soul shouts out, oh, sure, won't it be great when we're all in heaven? When the messianic feast comes, after all, this is what they were there to do, to look forward to the kingdom coming in full and the Messiah coming, but detached from the raw brokenness of creation they've just walked through. Perhaps a parallel in our churches is when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And we walk out to the rugged, raw places in our road, and that means nothing. So what was this messianic banquet in the listener's mind? Multiple passages in the Jewish scriptures use the image of this banquet feast to describe the joy of the coming age of salvation. By far, the most explicit description is in Isaiah. I think it's chapter 25. In the midst of a series of images of the coming day of the Lord, the prophet speaks of a future banquet for Israel and for the nations. On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fat things, of wine on the lees, of full of marrow, uh, wine on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. That's the suffering. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. It was an eschatological event. Suffering and death are ended, swallowed up. It was on earth. It was a transformed earth. It was a blessed state. There was abundance. Lavish feast was spread for people. It was centered on the Son of Man, fellowship with him and others in his presence. His rule was going to be over all the earth, and it was inclusive. 
all peoples are referred to. Gentiles were included and brought into this event. There was no more distinction. But when we look at some of the passages that we see uh, post-exilic period um, later on and how the, the understanding of the Feast of the Kingdom, this messianic banquet in Jesus' time, there's a significant development in how people understood it. Uh, the translators of the Isaiah pas- uh, passages post-exile, uh, they, they interpret some different words in this and a different image. The book of Enoch in the 2nd century BC also speaks of this great banquet, but the Gentiles are present in a different sense. The angel of death will be present to destroy those Gentiles at the banquet. The banquet hall will run with their blood and believers will have to wade through it in order to reach the table. It's a little bit different to what we read in Isaiah. In the Qumran community, the documents that they were working with, they were certain that no Gentiles were going to be present at this banquet. Only pious Jews who obeyed the law would be there. And what's also clear from this passage in the Qumran documents is that no one with disabilities would be present. No one can attend the banquet who is smitten in his flesh, paralyzed in his feet or hands, lame or blind, deaf or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. And so by the first century, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews of his day, there was a completely obscured understanding of what this messianic banquet was going to be. It was going to be for an us, not the them. It was going to be for the people on the inside, while the people on the outside were very happily excluded because they defined us on the inside. And Jesus enters into this arena of distorted and detached truth. And he says, when he hears the words, won't it be great when the kingdom feast comes? Jesus says, you want to talk about the kingdom feast? Let's talk about the kingdom feast. And he tells them this story, the parable of the banquet. And it is a kingdom story. It's a story of another kind of dinner party, another kind of host, another set of guests, and another way for God's people to look ahead to God's kingdom that is coming, but is here now at the same time. It's another way of God's people to inhabit those real and raw places of joining heaven and earth in the here and now. I think there's many lessons for the church to gain when we read the parable in its context. First of all, let's look at this parable. Who is in here? Those who were in and those who were out. Those who were in, they were people of privilege, of comfort. They owned land, so they had bought a field. They owned a way of making a living. They had oxen. They had a status in society. They'd been able to get married, which in that culture actually meant you had some status. The host, he's also in the in crowd. He throws this lavish party. It was a banquet of abundance. There were many guests. He was master of a whole household. I mean, this is like a Posh and Beck style event going on. Meals and hospitalities in various cultures take different shapes and have various functions. Living in different cultures, I've been able to see that and live that out and find myself in that. In this Middle Eastern Jewish culture, functions and dinner parties were shaped by the culture of honour and shame. This kind of meal was constructed to assert, maintain and improve your social status in society. It advertised who you were by the associations that you kept. Double invites were common, 
so that each guest had time to ascertain who else is going to be at this dinner party or meal and I'll decide if I want to associate with them because that will say something about me and who I am. There was an expected reciprocity that Jesus refers to. If you invite and you're accepted by that person who is at a higher level of society to you, it's expected that that person is going to invite you back and therefore you can climb the social ladder. Banquets were costly, but it was social insurance at this time. And if you've watched any Jane Austen, you've probably seen that playing out there as well. But the status of being in and accepted was precarious. One's identity and social status was at the hands of others. And that's what we see going on in this parable, in this passage. In this case, the host was a victim of a pre-arranged conspiracy, one commentator writes. The invited guests, for some reason, had closed ranks and decided that this host is not worth. We don't want to associate with him. He's out. Let's close ranks. And the host responds in a, a different way. Uh, he, he res- yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll explore that. He, ex- he responds in a different way. It would have been expected that he would respond in a tit-for-tat regaining his honour. The concerns of everybody going on here, belonging, value, worth, dignity and purpose. But they had taken those concerns under their control, manufacturing their place and their worth by manipulation. Let's look at the other side. Who was on the out? These are the least, the lost, the left out ones. Where were they? It tells us a lot about them. On the streets and the lanes of the city. It conveys the socioeconomic position of the poor and the disabled. So the word used for street here in Luke is, refers to a more broader, a travelled road, kind of like a high street. And so you've got the idea of beggars sitting out here where there's a high level of footfall waiting to receive almsgiving. The alleys or the lanes, the words used here in context, would be more hidden off the beaten path, usually where the least would be found hidden, waiting. The servant is now sent into that part of the city where the underprivileged people were living, the poor, crippled, blind, the lame, the very people already mentioned at the start of the passage. And so is Luke creating an image here of the streets and the lanes that Jesus and the Pharisees had walked to on the way to the feast. Past the man with dropsy, sitting at the corner of that road. Is that the man he's talking about? They have to go out to. There's a locational segregation of people here. They had to go out past the inn places, past the places where they inhabited, to places where they didn't normally go to. Verse 23 talks about the highways and the hedges when he has to go out a second time. Roads and country lanes. These are the places outside of the city. And now that those inside the city had been gathered, his servant was to go out again. These are the untouchables. They would be living in the small shacks and dwellings because of their disability and disease. These are the furthest out ones from the mainstream gatherings. Let's talk about boundaries. Mealtimes, sharing food, are designed and have so much potential to bring people together, to bridge gaps. Offering food to the other in many cultures is a way of offering oneself 
And accepting food from someone is a way of accepting self, bridging gaps. Eating is one of life's basic needs, right? And so when you do it with other people, you're reminded of your humanity and your shared humanity around a table together. And sharing food, sharing the meeting of needs together, celebrating, has so much potential and is designed to create, to eradicate boundaries and bring people in. But our human default is towards the powerful, the strong. The human default is to define ourselves and our identity on the, ver- on the horizontal, relative to you, relative to you. And we do this in so many areas of our lives. I'm maybe not quite like that, not as good as that, but, you know, I'm here. And we want to kind of keep going this way. Hospitality, literally interpreted, is embracing the stranger, embracing the one who is other to you. And it's so deeply rooted in the way Yahweh has always wanted his people to live, moving out and beyond, moving this way. When there are no shared spaces of location, there are attitudinal barriers, a them and an us. You have a different kind of life. You have a different kind of humanity. There's no shared experiences, no shared conversations about what your day has been like and what my day has been like. There is a strong and a weak, powerful and powerless, a have and a have not. There's also a moral framework going on here, and this is a whole different seminar. The term sinner has a different connotation to maybe how we understand it when it's used in the gospel. This was an official term used um, for people who were officially excommunicated from the synagogues in Jesus' time. Excluded because they were believed to have been committing some sin that Yahweh had not forgiven them for, and so they had to be out of the community. And the way that people thought they had sin was because um, all parts of their humanity were interconnected. Their physical, mental, intellectual capacities, their, everything to do with a person was interconnected in this Jewish worldview. And if the visible part was broken or damaged or disabled, then it was obvious that there was something sinful going on spiritually and Yahweh was punishing you. It was obvious that you, if you weren't receiving the blessing of the covenant, that you'd done something to step outside that covenant. And so these people were outside. Let's look at the barriers from those who were on the other side, on the outside. There was an accepted laissez-faire kind of attitude. They knew the boundaries. It was fatalistic to them. They didn't try to overcome the social boundaries. They didn't have any power to do that anyway. Barriers were part of their daily existence. When we lived in Bangladesh, you would talk to people about their perception of being disabled or being in the slums or being on the outside. And it was just an inshallah. It's the way God wants it. It's the way he's made it. And whenever the master told the servant to go out and bring in, one commentator says this was probably necessary. Not so much because, for example, the blind wouldn't have been able to find the banqueting hall unless they were taken by the hand, but because all the groups here mentioned might entertain serious doubts as to whether they were going to be welcome and whether this sumptuous banquet was actually going to be for them. They were not used to being invited in. They could not repay or reciprocate in this culture. And so social etiquette meant they had to decline. It was beyond belief that it was going to be for them. So 
bringing them in required intentional going out and compelling them to come into something that they did not expect was going to be for them. Last year, we started a special needs provision here um, through Scripture Union and the board um, through long conversations with the board at New Horizon. And I spoke to a mum here this morning who's here for the first time with her, her child who has Down syndrome and he's in the Scripture Union program. She said, I, I still can't quite believe that he's able to come to something Christian, that he might actually encounter Jesus. Isn't that ridiculous? There are boundaries today. Location and attitude. What's it like here in the West? Well, shared spaces are improving in society. Really, in the last 10 years, we've seen a shift in government and state provision for people with intellectual disability as being not in the asylum, (laughs) shut away, but more in community. And so we're seeing more shared spaces slowly developing in education, um, in community, public bodies, charities, agencies. Um, there, There are more shared spaces happening, but there are still boundaries. Uh, I work a bit with National Autistic Society and MenCap, and they say they have focused a lot over the last eight years on awareness, awareness of intellectual disability, awareness of autism. But now they say they need to move more with the messaging of acceptance. People know that people are there with intellectual disability. Now they need to change their attitude and their behaviour towards them. So many cultural narratives and worldview. I mean, I could talk for a whole hour about my my personal experiences uh, on this. It is not an uncommon experience for me to be walking around the streets with Micah near the house where I live and just to be chatting to the shopkeepers or the people behind the till or people at the traffic lights about Micah and his very autistic traits and for it to be a friendly conversation. Often I find this is a way I can share Jesus with people, with Micah. And they'll say to me, ah, oh, I take it you don't believe in abortion because you have a child like that. Hate crimes from 2017 to 2018 against people with disability rose by 33% linked to the conversations around universal credit being slashed. A friend of mine was on a train uh, not so long ago coming from Bangor to Belfast and her little boy, autistic boy, was sitting doing his hand flapping, humming and rocking, looking out the window, his favourite place to be on a train. And a guy got on and he said... Would you guys just find another seat somewhere? I've had a hard day at work and I don't want to look at a thing like that. This is shocking to you, but this is the narrative under which I live and my friends live. Just look at the abortion debate. What kind of person deserves a life? The humanity of people with intellectual disability is under question out there. And church, we need to do better in here so that we have authenticity when we speak into the abortion debates. Surveys reflect across the board that for people living with disability, what do they want out of life? They want to belong. They want to have value. They want to have purpose. Same as me and you. What about the church? Where are people with learning disabilities in our churches? Are they serving? Or do we serve them with an attitude of paternalism? Where are the resources to bring Jesus to people like my son, men, women, boys and girls? Does that say that we don't expect them to encounter Jesus and so we don't facilitate it? Where are the genuine friendships 
My son has never been invited to a birthday party. I was asked to go to Stormont last year as a parent rep um, for um, children with learning disability. And they were talking about adult services as well. And quite frankly, it was depressing. There was a very high percentage of adults there um, when they read out the statistics of adults who leave the house three hours per week by a paid befriender. Church, we have people and homes. We need to go out. We need to bring in. What about our theology? What's our theology around intellectual disability? And this is a whole separate R for each strand of theology I'm going to refer to. But one theologian refers to our theological barriers around intellectual disability as the tyranny of the normal. Amos Young, a lead missiologist at Fuller Seminary, talks about disability and the church. And he says our theologies and our practices in church are all rooted in a normate hermeneutic. That means we read the Bible, we read scripture through the lens of being able-bodied, able-minded people. And when we read it through, through that lens, we come up with a distorted truth. Let's look at the image of God briefly. We think of the image of God largely as being creative, relational and rational. And so that's how we're created. And so we can connect with God. We can do God's work here on earth because of these strands. But I don't see any creativity, relationality or rationality in my son. He's more destructive than creative. We struggle to think and understand what's going on in his mind at times. And he finds it very hard in an up-close relationship with you. We have understood God through the able-bodied, able-minded. We have thought, well, humanity can love, but God loves even more, and his love is purer. Humanity can know and understand, but God is so uh, much more able to understand in um, in that omnipotent way. Humanity can do, but God can do so much bigger. Humanity can um, think, work things out, but God can do that better. And so we've started at the place of an able-bodied, able-minded human being and created our understanding of God and the characteristics of God which are important from the wrong are a limited starting point. When you, start, when you live with a, son, uh, a child like my son and think through these theology, read through this part of the systematic theology book, you, there are very real gaps. And as I went on this journey... I started to think through, well, what does it mean as Micah, as a very vulnerable little boy? Someone who needs people, who can't be without people. Could it be that he points us to that triune community of God where dependence is just as an important characteristic of God as his his omnipresence, as his omnipotence? What about Micah being weak and vulnerable? Does that not point to God, the creator, becoming vulnerable and how he set up creation, how he came to the cross and how he has let his work on earth rest in the hands of the church? What about revelation? Do we expect children, men, women, boys, girls who have no words or who don't process the world in words in a verbal way? Do we expect Jesus to be able to encounter them? How does my son who has no words encounter God and Jesus through the word capital W what are we doing around that Micah does not understand 
love, patience, peace, generosity, perseverance. But he knows it when he sees it through you. And he will seek you out if you show it to him. There's actually a beautiful picture of Micah on New Horizon um, Facebook from last night. And he met his respite worker who he hasn't seen since last year. She is a lovely Christian girl, goes to Hollywood Baptist Church, and went the extra mile for Micah. He knew he was safe and loved by her. When he saw her, just look at the picture, he was delighted. She facilitated Jesus for him in that context. Who do we identify with in this parable? As I have experienced church and mission, I would say we identify with the host. We want to be the strong, the able, the benevolent one. We want to do mission to those poor people with intellectual disability. And we have ignored the heart uh, to receive. When we go out and think of ourselves as doing something good for this marginalized people group, and that's it, with an attitude of paternalism, that is not sharing our table. That is not creating belonging. It's creating receiving. It's not creating value and worth. It's creating charity and duty. It's not creating purpose. That makes their purpose reduced to making us feel charitable and feel good about ourselves and feel like we're good Christians. Or conversations that I've had is that it, cre- it creates their purpose, my son's purpose, is to create a sense of gratitude in you that you don't have a humanity like he has. And that's been verbalized to me. What Jesus is talking about in this parable is something so much bigger and greater and more beautiful. Let's look more closely at the host. Where are we here? He was rejected. He was previously engaged in the in circles. He was in the games of social order, the controlling, competing, the social insurance But experiences of rejection and exclusion and social marginalization put him on the outside. He did not reciprocate and respond the way the culture would have suggested that he would would have. The cultural norm for his response would have been one of anger, clamoring for his coveted social spot, bringing shame on the people who had excluded him so that he would get back into the place of honor. But this, his response was not a, well, I'll just have my own party then and I'll invite other people and you're not invited to my party. His response was to do something radically countercultural and beautifully new. He chose to disengage with all those cultural social games going on. He rejected the old social order and value system. He participated in the creation of a new social order in which the boundaries would normally exclude people like himself from people like them are rendered inconsequential. The social values out there didn't matter to him anymore. He experienced a transformation of heart, of values, and in that he acted as an agent and a catalyst of transformation in society. What were his expectations giving this feast. He had invited those who couldn't repay him, as per Jesus' instructions earlier in the chapter. He does not expect to gain anything from these people coming into his party. He just had so much, he wanted to give it away. There was no social insurance going on here. There was nothing for him to gain, or so it would seem. Because when Jesus gave advice to the host about when drawing up a guest list, He said that you will be blessed by inviting people who cannot repay. 
not because they cannot repay. Or, sorry, not even though they cannot repay. That you'll be blessed even though they can repay. You'll be blessed. You'll have done a good thing. Jesus says, you will be blessed when you invite these people in because they can't repay you. And so blessing comes in the form of reaching out relationally with a heart motive and a new identity that is not self-absorbed, not self-promoting, and that I feel good about myself for doing something good. In L'Arche community, uh, the volunteers have said, in L'Arche, L'Arche is a community um, which brings together in a residential community and social activities, people who are have intellectual disability and people who don't. Um, there, there's no boundaries. Everybody is an equal partner at the table. And one volunteer said, in L'Arche, it's never quite clear who's providing the care and who's receiving it. And I think that's the point of L'Arche. It goes in all directions. I relate so deeply with my journey with Micah and my spiritual formation and what he has done to me in terms of my service and my form of mission and outreach and perceiving me and God's work in his world. Sarah Williams, in her book Perfectly Human and Shaming the Strongs, talks about her daughter, Kerian, who was given a terminal diagnosis that she wouldn't exist outside the womb and Sarah decided to carry her her full term. She writes, Kerian was an unexpected treasure. She appeared at first to be the loss of hope and the disruption of all my plans, but through her, God came close to me again, wild and beautiful, good and gracious, strangely familiar but infinitely exciting. I touched his presence, unspeakable joy of life and communion with him underneath all my longings and attempts at my own redemption lay an aching desire for God himself. My daughter shamed my strength and in her weakness and vulnerability she showed me a way to intimacy with Jesus. As I died to my own strength in carrying her, it had felt that my identity was being negated and yet in fact I was finding my identity as a gift given by God himself to me. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak, to shame the strong, the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are and so that no one may boast before him. And so I see my little boy Micah as a prophetic presence with no words in my church. My church of people who are made up of middle class, professional, self-sustaining people to say, It's okay not to be okay. We need one another here. It's a relationship of equals that's being created. The host was not just their benefactor. There's a deeper revolution of culture going on here. And by inviting these people into a meal, he issues a call into relationship and embracing the stranger, offering himself in relationship. He too has been rejected. He too is on the margins of the social order and he acts out of solidarity and new awareness, creating with these people something very new and very different outside the social cultural games which were going on. And so when we delve into this parable, we don't put ourselves in the place of the host. Only Jesus is the host. And reading Isaiah 53 and those servant passages We see that in the Jewish listeners' ears, these passages would have been ringing. Rejected, despised by those he came to, his own people. But they didn't receive him on the margins. He was a wounded host. 
And often our image of the risen Christ ignores his suffering and his brokenness. Amos Young suggests that Jesus, rather than demonstrating triumph over disability and removal of disability, demonstrates a triumph through and in disability with hope and redemption in the brokenness of our humanity. His is a hope-filled woundedness in his humanity that sets the tone for his feast. He was recognized because of his wounds. Central to the community that Jesus wants to set up here and that we want to replicate in our churches is no longer a them and us, but a we underneath Christ as our head. Christ welcomes all who recognizes their wounds, whatever form of broken humanity that is that you live with. And we all live with a form of broken humanity, right? Hospitality in the Christian community becomes a community of equals where we share a common broken humanity which is redeemed in the person of Christ because of our identity in Christ. There are no place for social games in the church. There is no place for a them and an us in the church. The essence of the church, which is reiterated again and again through Paul's epistles, is that the Christian church was the place where there were no distinctions around humanity. There was no Jew nor Gentile. There was no male, no female, no slave, nor free. And I think we could add to that today, no able or disabled. By entering into this form of mutual hospitality, each one as a co-host of Jesus, we begin to experience what Jesus highlighted as being blessed. When we invite and welcome the stranger, and Jesus always mobilized his disciples by saying, you call that man to me. You bring that boy to me. He moved them out and beyond themselves, not just for the benefit of the boy or the man that he wanted to engage with, but for the benefit of the disciples. Here, in this encounter with people who were different to them, under Jesus' leading, led to the deepest form of their spiritual transformation. Vanier writes, If you enter into a relationship with a lonely or suffering person, you'll discover something else. It's you who is being healed. The broken person will reveal to you your own hurt and the hardness of your own heart, but also how much you are loved. Thus, the one you came to heal becomes your healer. Mutual confession of our need of help underneath the leading of Christ becomes the essence and the culture of the church. When we go out to a different people group, we often learn things about gospel and church that challenges us to stretch how we do church, how we think about God. I've talked a little bit about the theology and that. And I saw this when working with Muslim people, doing church, building church and church planting in the Muslim world. Churches look a little bit different to how they look here, and they have to, to fit in that context. In March, I was leading out a consultation that took place in Oxford Centre for Mission Studies with OMF. And we brought together disability theologians and missiologists, uh, theologians and practitioners in both of these areas, just to have an initial conversation. People came into the room thinking, okay, yes, how do we go globally into areas and reach people with intellectual disability? We're not doing that. How do we go to them? 
But our agenda was to stretch the conversation into what does it mean for your church when you do that? What does it mean for your understanding and your theology of salvation, revelation, prayer, God, community? When you go out to the community with intellectual disability and really bring them in. If a person cannot pray, the way we teach prayer and the way we practice prayer, do we just write them off? underneath the category of communicating with God and him with them? Or do we seek out with them, reading scripture with them, to do prayer and facilitate prayer in a different way that might bless the whole church? If a person like my son cannot be part of his church community for various reasons, between half ten and twelve on a Sunday morning, do we write them off from being part of the church community? Or do we explore, read scripture with that family to discover what might it look like to do church in a different way? What would it look like to have a little portion of church in your home on a Sunday morning while others are meeting in the main church building? And what missional opportunities might work out in my street if that's what we're going to do? If a person cannot engage with Jesus through the word, as we have cognitively and verbally expressed how God relates to us. And I'm not dissing the place of the word. The word is central in this conversation. But do we need to explore what it means, not just to give out the word in theory, but to live it out in practice, so that we become a community where people with no words experience love, experience patience, experience generosity and and all the fruits of the, the spirit of Jesus that he wants to develop in, in my life, in my home, and in my church community. I spoke a few weeks ago in Mark 2 when the four friends brought the disabled guy on a stretcher to Jesus to the roof and they couldn't get in. Often I feel like that's been my experience. I just I can't get in to the church and the Christian gatherings. And so what does that mean? Literally, the word in uh, the passage in Mark 2 is that they de-roofed the roof. What does it look like for us carefully, theologically, to be reflecting with this group of people, with this group of people, not to this group of people? What does it look like to de-church the church? And what kind of corporate witness would we have in the world if we become so radically relevant to this group of people? Newbigin talks about the church being a sign, a symbol, and a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming, but has come. And he talks specifically about people with a disability. He says, you need men, women, boys, and girls with a disability in your church. Without them, your witness to the world is distorted, and your discipleship is irrelevant to a world where people are hurting. And so what does it mean to be a proleptic people? Proleptic, anybody know what proleptic means? It's not really a theological word, but it has implications for theology and practice. Proleptic has been my word of the year. It means that you live now as if the future is reality, as if it's real. So when your boss says to you, could you get those reports to my desk on Monday morning? We say it's done. It's not done, but you know it will be done. So you say it's done. We live now as if the kingdom is so real 
we learn what it means for that messianic banquet, the kingdom reign of God. We, our eyes are so focused on that, but our feet are so rooted in the here and now that we live it out in the real and raw places of the world. No longer when we all get to heaven, it will be great. But as seeing what the rule and the reign of God is, living under the reign of the king, J.B. Phillips referred to the early church's core belief that they were the people of the kingdom. It's just what drove them. Their new identity in Christ is the conviction that their little human lives had in Christ been linked up with the very life of God. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become in Christ literally the sons of God. They were the pioneers of a new humanity, a new social order, the founders of a new kingdom. And when you see how the early church lived, they were radical. Every morning they went out and collected in the the orphan girl babies that were left at the doors. They went out and fed the hungry. They built up an immunity because of all the, the plagues that happened in the first century. They went out and were engaging with the sick people. They were a provocative people, a subversive people, because they lived under the full lordship of Jesus Christ, not just that he is Lord of heaven, but that he is Lord of the earth too. And so what does it look like for us in my home, your friendship groups, in the places you inhabit? What does it look like for you in your church community to hear the words of Jesus, to intentionally, actively, strategically, in the right attitude, go out, bring in those who are so excluded from our Christian communities and from Uh, our our understanding of what it means to be with God. I want to create a bit of discussion time here. Um, Maybe just in groups of five or six. You might take your headphones off for this. Um, I want to look at some of these ideas. We're thinking about church gathered. Communion is so key here. Often we we, um, have our weekly communion or whatever your tradition you're in. Um, the, the Eucharist, uh, the communion feast, the bread and the wine. And it's so internal and it's so eternal that it doesn't mean anything to how we're living here and now. And yes, we look back and we see what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. And yes, we look forward to that messianic banquet, to the feast of the kingdom. But we need to start connecting the dots with what it looks like for us on a Sunday morning to be celebrating what Jesus has done and then stepping out the front doors of our churches, the front doors and our streets. Church gathered and church scattered. Um, what does that look like to go out and bring in? So, not sure how much time we have left. Right? Just okay. Turn to the person beside you. Think of one idea or one experience that you might have in your church, in your home, in your friendship group, whatever age you're at, in your peers. What does that look like? Thinking of where the people are out there. Special needs schools, residential homes, communities. Um, Thinking about the... The neighborhood clubs, 
Um, Rick has and his wife, he'll hate me for saying this, they have recently approached social services and said, we want to do respite for someone who has a learning disability one night a week. What would it look like in our churches to get 10 units of people and for the whole church to be behind this and say, we want to provide respite for one weekend a month for 10 kids? And the church will be in this. They'll be opening up their building. They'll be looking after the siblings. They'll be providing meals for the other families to go and do something good. What does that kind of thing look like? What does it look like to approach a special needs school? I spoke at a church a couple of years ago on this. And they stepped out to their local special needs school and said, look, how can we be of service to you? We have a building and we have people. And they started a youth club. And now the the families are coming in and they're finding a safe space, a welcome space for people to be together. And they're praying with the parents around the real raw needs and appointments that they have that week with their kids. What does it look like? for you intentionally to step out into those places and to be good news people.